Hey guys, you're listening to episode 83 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we're talking to Matt Mancinelli, Managing Director at Generous Giving. Matt caught the generosity bug early on in life and quickly developed an excitement and joy for generosity. He loves to push the boundaries of giving and has many stories to share from his own life and from others who have been along on the journey. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have growing community groups on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with Matt Mancinelli from Generous Giving. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be here with you guys. So why don't you kick us off telling us a little bit of how your story began, some of your upbringing, and and maybe your faith background. Yeah, sure. So I grew up, well, my parents grew up Catholic, and by the time I was born, they weren't doing anything engaging with that. And so I think I was probably five or six or seven when my parents kind of said to each other, we were always raised with some religion in our lives. Maybe our kids should be too. And so they sent us down the street to a one-week vacation Bible school, which was at then called Ebenezer Baptist Church. And we did our little kid thing, whatever that was for the week. And my parents came back on the Friday night and heard the gospel presented clearly for the first time. And either that night or in the subsequent weeks came to Christ. And so from the time I was kind of six or seven, my home started transitioning towards being a a Christian home or Uh, you know, my parents came to Christ somewhere in that time. And so I remember learning the gospel over the subsequent years. I probably trusted Christ myself uh, sometime in late junior high school or early high school, as I saw the gospel that I kind of learned theoretically lived out in peers around me. And yeah, that was a rich time. After that, I'd say I became like a a ministry machine. That's the phrase I sometimes use. I was just... (laughs) really involved in the local youth group, got to lead a team of people to Mexico and do some trips doing street evangelism stuff. I was going to a Catholic high school because it was the best school around and got to sometimes teach Bible classes and share the gospel there. And so all that was great. I didn't realize that there was a, a difference or didn't learn the difference yet, I guess, between doing ministry and knowing God. And so I felt like I was quite proficient. Even a lot of my discipleship at that point, I was being discipled and doing ministry more so than knowing Jesus, which frankly is still easy for me today to, to get caught up in doing more than just knowing or being. But all that to say, by the time I got to the end of high school, combined with a little a personal crisis of a friend who tried to take her life and was in a coma for several days, I think that plus the just doing ministry dynamic, I burned out um, a bit and went to Taylor University in Indiana, kind of in that same burned out state and was thinking, how do I get back to where I was? And then doing some reframing like, oh gosh, maybe I was never there. I mean, not that I never knew Jesus at all, but that I was more comfortable doing ministry. So anyway, that was a a season. I'd go to a little prayer chapel we had on campus daily or almost daily and just journal prayers and try to figure out what all that looked like. Um, 
during that time, we had a guest speaker come for a missions week to our chapel program named George Verwer. And uh, George started a, an organization called OM or Operation Mobilization. And I'll, I'll never forget the first, that first morning when I heard him speak. Um, and he talked about Ephesians 6 says, take up the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. And he'd often preach in like sevens or tens. So his message was the seven fiery darts of Satan from that. And he just talked about seven struggles in his own life. So one of them was this. I still remember him saying, I've started this organization, OM, that has now shared the gospel face to face with one billion people around the world. And some mornings I wake up and wonder if there even is a God. That's the, the fiery dart of doubt in my life. And I was sitting there. This is that season, right? Where I was struggling and trying to figure out where, where and who I was. And I just remember uh, thinking like, this guy's doing big things. I want to do big things. And he's a struggler and I'm a struggler. And so I, I, you know, showed up at all his chapels that week and went up to him after one of the messages and just said, Hey, can I come travel with you for a year? I feel encouraged for the first time in a long time. And he's like, I don't, whatever, here's my business card. And I just started calling him. And sure enough, the next year I took a year off Taylor. I moved to London, England, which is where he lived and traveled with him for a year to, I think, 15 or 20 countries, carried his bags, sold books, you know, listened to him speak a few times a, a week and all that kind of stuff. And so that was such an amazing opportunity and turning point. And also the kickoff to, I'd say, a big part of my generosity journey. In the process of doing that, it was my job to raise. I don't remember. I think it was like 20,000 bucks to be able to travel with him for the year. And so I was meeting generous people in that process. And somebody gave me a copy of the book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. And as part of my support raising process, learning about that, I read that book. And I assume you guys have read it. It takes maybe an hour or two to read. I mean, it's a little one. And I just remember shutting the back cover of the book and was like, I, I'm going to live life differently now. I mean, maybe more than any book on any topic. It was just that kind of a switch for me. So the book is based on Jesus' words in Matthew 6, do not store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where those things don't happen. And one of my treasures at the time was my 1964 Volkswagen microbus. It was seafoam green and white, split window, you know, just felt like the the classic kind of hippie van right out of the 60s, but it was in, in great condition. And it had been in Texas for most of its 40-year existence and was now in Michigan where cars get rusty. It's just the way it goes <laughs> up here. We got salty roads and all that stuff. And so Jesus' words were, I mean, I guess Jesus' words are always true. They felt very literally or specifically true that it's like one of my treasures will get rusty here on earth. And so I sold the bus and uh, gave the money away. And that was kind of just an initial step in the journey. Another one in response to that book, I came home the next summer having traveled with Verwar for this year. And when I was traveling with him, you know, I would just meet like all these leaders around the world because that's, you know, I was going where he was going and meeting all these people. And so I felt like after I came back and did my sophomore year at Taylor, the next summer I had countless opportunities of various countries I could go to, things I could do, and just kind of like the world is my oyster, what should I do? And I felt that attraction to come back to giving based on the treasure principle 
And so I took a construction job working 56 hours a week and committed to a backwards tithe where I would give 90% and spend the other 10 and just had a blast working hard all summer and giving away what I made. And I asked some different people, invited some different people to match me in that. So we got to raise a little more and, you know, it's fun. I, I moved back home. It's not like it was hard to just, you know, whatever. I was living with my parents for that summer and bought an old Lincoln for 500 bucks. I'd have to push the glass up and down with my hands to roll down the window or up <laughs> the window. And it was just a great, yeah, great adventure and all that. Yeah. That's a lot of the, the early story, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing that sticks out to me about what you just said there is, is how excited you were to be part of that generosity story and, and how that is something you, you're smiling right now. You're, you're looking back at that time. I'm like, yeah, yeah it, it was, it was not like a struggle and you were, you were thinking, you know, why can't I just get enough money to live the life that I want to live? It's like, this is the life that I want to live and, and money provides an avenue to, to be generous. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's just the coolest way to spend some of your college years. I'm so curious to hear where that took you once you graduated from college. Yeah. Well, to the first part of what you just said, I'll just echo. I've got a, a scripture up here on my wall that says, it is more happy making to give than to receive, which is Jesus quoted in Acts. And that's Alcorn's translation of it. But I just feel like that's so true to your point there, Cody. Like it's not just more noble or more Christian, like it's way more fun. And I often, you know, give something away and think, man, if I had tried to spend that same amount of money, there's no way I could have got the same amount of joy. So right. yes, that's true. Yeah. So where did all that take me? So finished my time at Taylor University, ended up running for and being elected student body president my last year, which was for the sole reason that I wanted to speak in chapel and only one student got to speak in chapel each year. And that was the student body president. So I went after it and used that platform to try to raise a bunch of money for fighting HIV and AIDS around the world. And so that was a really fun also season of just trying to work with college students who you know, have the reputation for being poor college students, but raise money. And I forget where we ended up a hundred something grand, way short of my million dollar goal. But, you know, just cool. I actually, my funnest memory, I haven't thought about this for, for a long time. Most fun memory from that time was we did an offering one day in response to just whatever the whole, the whole thing. We had a, a special service that was meant to be an offering and people knew they could bring not only money, but stuff. And so I remember being up, it was like a small auditorium on campus, um, being up on the stage and somebody was playing some joy-filled type worship song and people were literally dancing down the aisles carrying boxes of DVDs or flat screen TVs or clothes or whatever and leaving them on the stage and you know then dancing back around the sides. And it was just such a, stinking fun picture of people giving their stuff and then doing a huge garage sale on campus that brought in, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. We just, all the students gave it and then bought it back, I guess, <laughs> which was totally a blast. So anyway, got to be part of some of that kind of stuff at Taylor and started giving away some hundreds of copies of the treasure principle. Just like I was finding so much joy in giving that I was 
wanting to share that with people. When I graduated, I didn't have a context for like vocationally, how does one share the joy of giving? And so I took a job doing some fundraising, building schools in India and lived in Denver, but went to India a few times a year. And again, it was sort of like, I loved the idea of trying to raise money, mostly because I got to try to inspire generosity as part of that. Did that a couple of years, was wanting to make a transition from where I was. And a generous friend of mine had just given a big gift towards building a school. And so I was actually trying to get his buy-in to quitting and kind of complaining like, oh, it's not going well where I am. I'm not learning good development. And he was kind of trying to get me to stay where I was at the time and said, well, I'll introduce you to some other people who you can learn good fundraising stuff from, some of the best there were none of whom were at the time raising money anymore, but three guys he introduced me to named Dick Savage, Peb Jackson, and Todd Harper. And the first one I connected with was Todd Harper. And we scheduled a a call for an hour. And I think we're still on the phone 90 minutes later, just swapping giving stories. And he's like, well, what, you know, we're talking about fundraising. Like what good books have you ever read on fundraising? I'm like, oh, every book I've read on fundraising has been painfully boring. But I read this great book called The Treasure Principle about giving. You ever read that? And he's like, well, I'm friends with Randy and we just published, you know, our own version of that book. I'm like, <laughs> what? This is amazing. And so anyway, I ended up transitioning some in the next couple of months uh, from that job of fundraising to the platform of generous giving, which is kind of like for somebody like me, the coolest place ever to work. Because um, the whole mission is to encourage people to be generous, but you don't have to ask for anything. Because uh, we're privately funded. And so, yeah, I got to spend a lot of years encouraging people to be generous without a hook. And, you know, during that time, I should also say more fun, even than the vocational part, was again taking another shot at pushing into the message personally. And so I moved to Orlando. I was making, I think it was 40 grand when I started. And I think it was my very first year there was getting excited about, about upping my percentage of giving and then also learning about a couple, maybe this was year two, I don't know, a couple of real estate deals that we were buying distressed houses and, and reselling them. And so anyway, maybe with the real estate deals, I ended up making 60 and I was able to give away half of it, give away 30 grand, spend, spending in taxes was 15 grand and then saving was another 15 grand. So basically spend a quarter, save a quarter and give half. And it was just, I mean, you guys could be going like, how'd you live on 15 grand? It was, (laughs) it was stupid and totally fun. Like no wife or kids at the time. And it was just like, you know, somebody gave me an apartment that was first free and then cheap. You know, I would just, I mean, I was a goofball. I'd sometimes eat leftover food off somebody else's table at the restaurant. And it was, <laughs> but again, it wasn't like, oh, I don't have enough. It's like, this is so fun. Let me see how little money I can spend for a year. And I think it ended up being like nine plus the six in taxes. So anyway, it was just a blast to to get to do that and felt fun. And then from that time, I liked the way it shook out, even though I hadn't planned it that way of like giving half. And so for the next several years, trying to remember maybe even until I got married, I just said, great, I can keep doing this and, and giving half of whatever that looks like. And just remember feeling like this is such a, I just, it just felt le- like the money that I was giving away 
felt at the time I was into a board game called Settlers of Catan. And you win the game by getting 10 victory points. And it just felt like I want to give a bigger gift. And it was, I don't, I don't remember the numbers. I'll just make up. It was five grand. And like, this is like getting five victory points. Like it felt like (laughs) there's a, just a strategicness and kind of leveragedness to the giving. And, you know, I'd rather do it than, than spend or whatever. And so anyway, that was a, a blast of a season. Some of my friends called me a freegan, which was a phrase I hadn't heard about living cheap or free and ridiculous <laughs> ways. Yeah. And that was great. And then, you know, it was an interesting shift meeting my wife. We were friends for a few years and eventually moved towards a, you know, different kind of relationship, romantic relationship and getting married. And I remember a time it was sad. We were in a, in a conference room doing a financial, like helping lead a financial workshop sort of thing for some folks. And we're staying after talking with our, our friend and my wife, Loretta started crying and said, I feel like Matt doesn't want to marry me because he'll have to spend more money. And, you know, that was just like a, and I think there was, I mean, I did want to marry her for sure, but she was identifying some real feelings in me that were like, you know, I can't, I'm not going to live on nine grand anymore. Right. And, and in a married life, and it actually cost us more to get married than some people, they're like combining incomes, but we were both sharing uh, houses with multiple people. So we were living really cheap. And anyway, all that to say, it's been a different kind of journey since then. My wife is wired towards generosity and we continue to absolutely try to give aggressively and can talk about that. Um, but it was a shift to go, okay, the, the eating food off other people's tables at restaurants is a season in, in one's twenties if they decide for it to be, but not what happens when they get married and start having kids. So anyway, it's just been, it's been interesting to navigate all that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking that before you even started into that transition, but I, I was mm-hmm. wondering what that transition into married life was going to be like, you know, t- walk us through some of those first couple of years. Cause uh, even if your wife was pretty aggressively geared towards generosity, that's still, you know, blending two different, lives and two different perspectives, upbringings, everything, and trying to mold them into one unified path. So walk us through a little bit more of what that kind of transition was like and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. I wish I wish Loretta was here to tell some of her part of the story here, but I'll represent it the best I can. So when Loretta was growing up, if she would get a, a Christmas gift or make some money or something, she was taught that she should give 10% of it away that she should spend 10% of it, and that she should save 80% of it. And her parents uh, lived that way quite conservatively, financially. And so that was kind of her, not obviously, she, so then she was a teacher when we got married, and uh, obviously not saving 80% um, or anywhere close to it, but kind of just still uh, in a conservative spot. And when we were still friends, I invited her to something called the Journey of Generosity, which is a tool that we use at Generous Giving, an overnight retreat on the topic of giving. And that was quite transformational for her in a couple areas. So one, financially, um, as you would imagine, its purpose to kind of encourage people, invite people to be more generous. But two, what happened as she started pushing into that, part of the, part of the journey of generosity or jog 
actually gives people time to listen. And it says, okay, there, here are all these stories of generous people. Like, what does this look like for you? And as Loretta started putting herself in a position of listening, she started hearing things that to her felt crazy. One was just she wanted to get some friends in our small group who were struggling a gift card and for a like a grocery store kind of thing and had a number in her mind. I think it was like 50 bucks and felt like God was clear. I'm like, no, make it 100 bucks. And she's like, I'm already more than tithing and I'm a teacher making 30 something grand and like, really, 100 bucks, but did it and pushed into that. And then some of us were getting together to buy a car for a couple. And she, I mean, when she recounts the story, because I asked her to consider being part of it, she's like, who does this guy think I am? Like, or he is, or what, what's going on here? Like, I don't just have money to help buy somebody else a car. I'm trying to pay for my own car. But felt like God said, give a thousand bucks towards that car. And so for her, I I, just, I mean, I'm jumping around here, but fast forwarding to today, I think one of her spiritual gifts big time is being able to hear the voice of God. And she's, you know, building crazy stories about that from that. But she would say that all started in the area of money. Uh, It all started in those early days around the journey of generosity. The way she learned to hear the Holy Spirit speak was on giving kinds of things. So she was, by the time that we got married um, or started dating even, she was already pushing into this generosity journey for sure. In fact, she set a goal. I don't remember the number, you know, over the course of my, I think it was a lifetime goal or maybe it was a some year goal. I don't know. I want to give away such and such dollars. I don't remember any of the numbers and was kind of going like, man, how am I going to do that? Like to stretch on my own. And then who am I going to marry that would want to do that kind of thing? And so as we started dating and it was like, she, she had this posture of like, Oh, this is, this is cool. Like there's somebody we're both, we're both on the same idea, have the same idea of giving. And so, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't remember a lot what some of those early years looked like. I mean, we both like to give a lot. She cares more about saving than I do. I like saving too, as much as the next fella, but you know, it's just kind of like it, it often didn't feel like it had a priority spot in some of those building years and then spending. I mean, we're both happy to be relatively frugal, but again, now we've got three kids. I mean, that's a moving line. And so basically through our marriage, we started giving away about 25% and wanted to turn that to 30%. And so for five years, we just added a percentage a year and then with the intention of saying, okay, we'll pause as we get to 30 and have kind of been there. And last year, I think it was, we just totally didn't make it. Like we got late in the year and it's like, okay, we got to give X amount and we don't have that much in the bank. You know, we like, we got behind somewhere. And so it's not like it's legalistic or perfect. I think we should be hopefully back on track for that this year, but we're just trying to, to push into, I mean, there's, a whole lot of things to spend money on with kids. And we also, because of generous giving and some other board service and things I've been part of, we tend to get to hang around with people, some of our friends who have a lot more than us. And so it's easy to feel some of that, you know, keeping up with the Joneses as it would go and see friends doing all kinds of things. And so we're always in that tension of like, yeah, there's more we'd like to do. Loretta would love to do our kitchen, redo our kitchen. And 
at the same time, like there's not just chasing the percentage, but stuff we really love to give to. And so there's like, yeah, we'd love to spend some of these things, but we also love to give it. So yeah, I think we're super blessed and being relatively aligned. I might tip a little more towards giving sometimes, but it's not much. I mean, it's, it's a good alignment. So I'm super grateful for that. Matt, I wanted to ask about a particular dynamic that I've been kind of navigating. And I was just curious if, if this has been something that you've spent any time thinking about, uh, because when you uh, make a decision to live on less than you make, uh, you kind of realize that you have more than enough already. And that gives you some capacity to give, which is super fun. And there's kind of a, a couple different ways to think about that. First is, uh, you know, being content, which I think is emphasized in, in scripture as contentment, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. it's, it's, you know, maybe I don't have to grind myself down to the bone just to, to strive after more because I have more than enough already. And that gives me peace. But at the same time, the joy that comes from that giving you you were talking about, you know, some real estate deals. It's it's very tempting to pursue uh, more channels for income to do Mm -hmm. more giving, to increase your capacity for giving at the same time. Have you navigated that over time of, of balancing contentment with what you already have and what you've already been given? And then also, pursuing more to increase your capacity to give, save, or spend? Yeah. Great question, Cody. So I'm going to speak largely from a position of weakness on this question. There are some questions you could ask me where I feel like, oh yeah, I'm doing decently at that. I'm not sure this is one of them, Uh, but I can always find something to talk about. So just let me first share about a moment of contentment, which it's just one of those ones that's stuck in my brain. So I remember being at a small airport. I don't remember where getting ready to, to get on an airplane. And in the little gate area was a a guy sitting there who was blind. He had the red and white cane or whatever the deal was. And I was traveling a lot at the time and had received a first class upgrade for the flight. And so as I was sitting there, I just, felt like the Holy Spirit nudge and say, give that guy your first class seat. And so I went up to the gate agent and said, Hey, you know, I see this guy here who looks blind. Obviously I have a seat first. I'd love to give it to him instead. And the guy was just like, you want to do what, you know, like outside of his realm of possibility. Uh, But we made the transition. He ended up giving me the gate agent an exit row seat anyway, which is like just as good. And said, you know, you still board whenever you want, whatever. And so I remember boarding the plane basically with the first class passengers. And so I got to see this guy sitting in the seat, which just felt like something about it. This is exactly what I was supposed to do. And then continued to walk back through first class. And it was a bit of a weird feeling being the only person in the entire coach section of the airplane, right? Like picture 300 empty seats and me being the only one in there at the time. And at the time I was giving, I shared with you like half my income. And so I was just smiling and feeling the joy of this and going, what if I gave away half, not just of my money, but of like every kind of blessing, like half of my first class upgrades, half of my whatever. 
And I just had this moment sitting there in the empty plane by myself of there would be no possible way to even measure or quantify the extent of my blessings, right? You know, I can't quantify what an upgrade looks like. I can't quantify how God takes care of me by sending me on a business trip and this nice hotel or the way this thing happened or the way this, I mean, it's just like, I am abundantly taken care of and blessed. And that may be my moment in life as I think about it of greatest contentment, like of just sitting there going, man, I have so much. And it came out of that moment of giving. Now to bring current and answer your question, Cody, contentment, as you started asking that question was the first word that came to mind. And I'm just not that good at it. And I don't know if some of that's the occupational hazard of the fact that a number of our, we've got friends all over the economic spectrum, but including pretty rich ones. And I was just at a, at a coworker's gorgeous second home, beach house kind of thing. And I'm just thinking like, man, it'd be nice to have a gorgeous beach house of my own. And it's easy for that stuff to creep in. And, and as I try to balance that in family life, I'd say this is a season Cody, where I've pursued making more, largely to give more. I mean, it's, you know, if we cut into our giving, we could spend more, certainly, but with some costs. Like, I'm just overcommitted. I'm on a, a couple too many airplanes. I've got a consulting gig that's a lot more lucrative than my day job, but it requires a few extra days out and a few extra airplanes and. I don't know if it's what God has for me or not. I'm not I'm not saying for sure like I shouldn't be doing it. If I thought that I'd I'd get rid of it. But there is I guess all that to say there's still a desire for more, for probably good reasons and bad reasons. And I feel like I'm pushing on the area of contentment, but I'm unfortunately not there much of the time. So you're gonna have to get some good wisdom from somebody else on how to run that one down. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate both of your thoughts on that because that's, I think something we haven't gotten into as much on the podcast, but is a really real uh, struggle, especially for people who have been long-term passionate givers, I think is yeah. Yeah. There's the temptation to want to earn more in order to be able to spend more or save more, but also to give more. And it always comes with a sacrifice. If there was ways to earn more that had no sacrifice, everybody would do that. And so, you know, whether it's time or even other kinds of sacrifice, it always comes with something. And, and it's, you know, your story so clearly captures in so many of those different stories along the way from the very beginning, the joy that comes with giving and it's, you know, it's infectious and, addicting in in a way you just want to be a part of more and more and and so you know i've felt that many times as well like how can i increase capacity in some way to just be more a part of that i wanted to as i was listening to your story just seeing this theme of all the way back from you know that van that you sold and gave mm -hmm. everything away you know though you took some big steps early on and I think it's easy to think about it all in the context of generosity and being able, you know, increasing your capacity to give with stretching that muscle each time. But yeah. in my experience, and I think many others experience who have been on the same path, that 
process of stretching your giving is also so deeply interlocked with your faith in general, your ability to trust God. Uh, and I think money is such a tangible way to actually express faith because you have to hand something over yeah. and leave it up to, to God to answer. And I was wondering if you could just take a minute to share kind of how you have seen your relationship with God and your faith molded and shaped along the way, all the way from those early days up till now, alongside your giving? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. And I think that, I mean, that another scripture here is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've actually heard great teachers talk about that multiple ways. Like, yeah, you put your treasure somewhere, your heart follows. I mean, it, it works multiple ways. But I would say for me, one thing that comes to mind was learning a little bit about Bible translation. This goes back probably 15 years. And the fact that there's a whole lot of people who don't have any scripture in their language. And I made a, a commitment. I think it was probably October of some year. And I said, between now and December, I'm going to give a chunk of money towards this. And it's probably the largest gift I had ever made at that point. Um, and during that time from October, to December, I read my Bible from cover to cover, which I had never done before. And it was this element of I'm putting my treasure somewhere and my heart is following. It wasn't like a logical choice. I hadn't heard a sermon on if you're going to support it, you should read it. I mean, there was none of that. It was just like I'm stretching myself to do the giving. And all of a sudden, my heart is drawn towards reading the Bible in a way that was different than it had been before. So that that's a really practical kind of story that came to mind. I would also say, yeah, there's an element of kind of like Loretta's story about learning to listen on giving stuff that transferred into life. Like money's a great training ground because to your point, Keelan, it is, it's tangible. It's measurable. It's hard to measure where your heart is, uh, which is okay. That's not meant to be measurable. I mean, I like measuring things, but not everything. And yet money is a good proxy to life change. And so I think for me along the way, it was just a practical, it's easy for me to doubt a lot. It's easy. And I guess if there was no financial element, it's like, oh, whether God's real or not, whether the church is important or not, like I can still show up. It's not that big of a deal. But money kind of helped me be a way of saying like, no, no, this has got to matter. Like I'm an hour and a half on Sunday morning, if I'm unsure if God is real or faith is worthwhile, is a fairly easy switch. But 30% of my income, like I got to push through some real doubt to make that real. And so I think for me, it's just been a, yeah, an affirmation on the faith journey. Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about the different roles that you've had from fundraising your own support to maybe fundraising on behalf of an organization to generous giving where you're not raising funds, but you're encouraging generosity. Have you found that there are kind of common obstacles to giving and, and how has God used you to kind of speak into those uh, moments? Wow. Yeah. Good question. When I think of obstacles, I think, I think most of our giving obstacles or many of them at least are, tend to be blind spots. In those couple of years I worked in India, 
I remember learning about the caste system that, you know, divides people by class, but more extreme and learning that that's the case, even within the church, like inside the church, there's all these different, and I'm like, how, how can that be? Um, but it's so ingrained in their culture and lives that they don't even see it in their church, right? It's a blind spot. And I think here we've got a lot of blind spots. I've got a lot of blind spots around money and wealth. And so I think probably the, we could probably articulate some obstacles, right? I mean, I would, if you asked me about my current obstacles to giving, I'd say, well, Loretta really wants to redo our kitchen. And so there's a, we've got to figure out here, make some decisions. What dollars are we going to go towards giving or towards the kitchen? That one's clear and in front of me, but many of the other ones I think are subtle. How am I keeping up with the people that have more than me? Do I still actually believe that having more will make me happier, which I oftentimes do? And so I guess I'd say one, one big obstacle is just that we don't even have the vision to see, I don't know, kind of the whole thing through, I want to say God's perspective, not like I think I know God's perspective, but it's just, we're just a lot more self-focused than I think we probably even realize. I know I am. I mean, and I talk about generosity all the time and I'm still more self-focused than I realize most of the time. So I'd say that's a big obstacle. I mean, there's really, you can spend or save or give are kind of the big, you know, biggest three buckets. And I think the influence from culture and from our own hearts and from people around us, including Christians towards how much is enough on those other two, the spending and the saving are huge. Um, Like I remember we have some good friends who graduated college with a bunch of debt, hundred grand of debt without a good income stream to attack that. It's not like they finished medical school with hundred grand. It was music school. And so there was just this journey of like, I mean, it was overwhelming and, and crippling, frankly. And so we went on a journey with that friend I did too, and another friend to help him get rid of that debt. And so it was some years and lots of pieces, but we got it. We got rid of it, made it to zero. And on the day that his net worth hit zero dollars, we had a big party. Like it was, you know, I mean, all, all the sushi you could eat. I mean, it was just a blast. All these people coming together. And, and what was the party celebrating net worth hitting zero. And when I think of my net worth hitting zero, it's like, there's no party planning, right? That's like scary and horrible. And, and so I think there's just, this is a long winded obstacle, but it's like, I don't know, we're trained to want more and more. And some of that's reasonable. I mean, I'm not here to say nobody should save anything, but I'm just saying, my appetite for saving and what I'm taught is appropriate saving is like almost endless. I mean, all the things that could go wrong, all that I want to do in my retirement, all the places I want to go around the world, those are all real things. I'm not making up theoretical examples. Those are at least obstacles for me. and I I see them around me of like, I need more to be secure and there's more spending to make me happy. But I guess if I could just say one more thing, I think most of us don't even have the context. I mean, at Generous Giving, sometimes we come across people who are wired to be really generous. 
and they're giving away about 10% of their income because somehow that's just their, like that's the upper end of generosity in the way that they were taught and grew up. And so all of a sudden they hear these stories of people being more generous and they're like, oh, I'm switching my 10% to 50% today. Like I didn't even know that was allowed. You know, it would almost be the phrase (laughs) allowed according to who. And so what another big obstacle is we just, I think we just don't have the vision and then the, and the joy, you know, I've got a friend, well, Todd Harper who was on your guys' podcast says you haven't met a former giver. Like once you start giving and experience the joy of it, you know, there's no going back. So I think another obstacle is we just haven't tasted it yet. And once we do, it'll be big. So anyway, that's some from my life and that I've seen. Yeah. And if anybody wants to hear more about uh, Todd Harper and some of his story, he was back on episode 25. So you can uh, get a deep dive on his story back there. Uh, You know, as you were talking, another big one, which kind of blends into what you're talking about here, uh, is just that it's easy to get distracted or to just, you know, for generosity to just kind of slip away. (laughs) Uh, We talked to so many people who lead powerful lives of generosity. And then we'll be talking in an interview and they'll say, it feels lonely, you know, like I, mm. I, it's, I just don't have the community around me. There is everybody thinks I'm crazy, you know? And meanwhile, we got constant bombarding messages of needing to spend, needing to save retirement, all these different things. Those are constant no matter where you go. But the message of the joy of giving, like everything that you've shared in the last 40 minutes, uh, that is not as common of a message. And so I think there's a, a very deep power of generosity in community. And some of that's what we aim to do through this podcast, just sharing the stories so that yeah. people can you know hear, just like you're talking about with generous giving, that there are other people out there doing the same crazy stuff. And that's a big part of what you guys do at Generous Giving is building that community. Maybe you could speak into that for a minute about the power of generosity and community based on your experience and the work that you do. Yeah. Great question. Well, to both those points you just covered, I mean, I'm picturing a friend here who said like, I get the message, the opposite message of Generous Giving you know, 300 plus days a year. Like every time I get a catalog in the mail, it's saying, you know, you need to spend this. And this is normal to your point there, Keelan. Like this is the normal way things work, which it is in our world. And then, you know, you come to a generous giving event for a couple of days a year. And it's like, all of a sudden you're seeing everybody around you. You're in a room full of hundreds of people who are all experiencing the joy of giving giving, you know, extravagantly in many cases and hearing stories of people who are doing that. I mean, my friend said, I need that once or twice a year. I need that annual reminder to come back and say, like, this is, (laughs) this is the life that is truly life. Not what all those catalogs that I get every other day of the year say is the life is truly life. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't planning on like promoting generous giving here, but if that's you, if you feel like, man, I'm kind of alone 
in my generosity and people think I'm crazy, I would absolutely say once a year we do a celebration of generosity event. There's some other things. And you would just slip into that environment and like find your people. Be like, ah, I'm sitting at a table for dinner with a few other couples who are all giving extravagantly. And that's refreshing and encouraging and building up and all those things. Well, Matt, as you look ahead, I mean, God's already brought you through so much and uh, so many uh, incredible stories and the work you're doing at Generous Giving. What do you look most forward to as you look ahead to the next five or 10 years? Well, that's an interesting question, Keelan. Not, it, this, isn't, this isn't super tied with money and giving, frankly, but you guys might be familiar with Halftime, uh, the organization started by Bob Buford. And I've been on a halftime journey with a, with a coach and did an exercise recently called the Decades Exercise. So I'm labeling my 20s and what that's about, labeling my 30s. And uh, I just turned 40 in the last couple months. And so I, the way I labeled my 40s, and then I went on to 50s, 60s, so on, was that it's a decade of family. So I've got kids who are nine and eight and six. And so when I think of the next decade and what I'm looking forward to, it's like, well, 10 years from now, my, my, my kids are 19 and 18 and 16 and on the tail end of living under our roof. So for me, I still want to work hard. I still want to do a good job. I still want to take cool opportunities to fly around the world and do ministry as they come about. But the core of what I'm looking forward to for that next 10-year period is sewing into my kids. And that's my first priority. And I'm starting to use that as a filter to what kinds of things do I say yes or no to? There's been seasons of work where I traveled a ton. How does this not be one of those while well, I've got this limited window of kids at home? So anyway, that's what I'm really looking forward to is sewing into my kids. And the good news is, is that this generosity passion of mine uh, goes well with that. I mean, when I get to do giving with my kids, in fact, here's just one quick story along those lines. We're driving just a couple hundred yards from where I am right now. I got off the interstate ramp and there's a family there on the side of the road holding up a sign that said, please help or something. I don't remember. And so we stopped at the light and handed them a couple protein bars. And I said, where are you from? And they said, Romania, very limited English. And the thought that came to my head was, I just remember one time being in Romania on a bus, not having a place to stay and meeting some believers who gave me a place to stay. And so it was kind of like Romania, I owe you one, you know? And so the light turned green and we drove away, but circled back around, parked, walked across to them and just started talking with them through a translator app. And, you know, they didn't have much English, but this is me and a couple of my kids who were totally into the idea. Like they wanted to, I mean, the, the family had a kid who's one of my kids age, uh, Bogdan is his name. And so we just started talking with them. We invited them for dinner. They didn't come that night, but did a couple nights later. We invited them to stay with us several times. And as they got more and more comfortable, there were chunks of a week at a time where they stayed at our house. Uh, they move around a lot to try to find work. And so anyway, I think my kids getting to see that and be part of that, uh, for one, has been awesome. But then the story that, that was kind of background for, we recently had a road trip and drove out west. And my middle daughter especially kept asking me, well, can we fly home? Like we had all these fun stops on the way, but the drive back was a 40 hour drive back. And, you know, she's like, why can't we just fly? 
And I'm like, well, that would cost several thousand more dollars. Like we'd have to rent a car to get out there. We'd have to get the flights back. And she's like, well, dad, don't you have several thousand dollars? And I'm like, I mean, probably, I guess I'd have to check to make sure, but yes, (laughs) I probably have the thousands of dollars necessary for that flight. And I said, but Bogdan, the, the kid who was staying with us at the time from that family, you know, they live in their minivan all the time. And they bought that minivan for 1500 bucks and it's a piece of junk and about to break. And even if we have several thousand dollars, would you want to use it for us to fly back from that trip? Or would you want to use it to go towards getting them a new van that would be a lot nicer and, you know, that they could live in? And, you know, she thought for all of about five seconds and was like, definitely, I'd rather get them a new van. And so... All that to say, I guess I just feel like I have to tie something back to generosity because that's your podcast, but it's totally true. As I think about the next 10 years and get excited about time with my family, I love that this fits. You know, I may have to take a break from as much travel, but not from as much giving and getting to do this kind of stuff with my family is a stinking blast as well. Well, Matt, that's really encouraging. I think if my parents had asked me that same question, would you rather fly back or uh, buy a van for a family when I was a kid, I'd say I'd rather fly back. So they're, they're getting a good head start under your example. Mm-hmm. So, so great work there. Uh, Thanks, Cody. <laughs> if I had asked them at a year ago, they would have said fly back for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of the buildup of getting to know the family and we get to be around a lot of rich people. I told you that, but getting to be around some really poor people. I mean, those things have been really helpful for my heart and my kid's heart in building that runway. Yeah. Well, as we come to a close here, I just want to leave a little bit of time for our manager's minute. You've shared so many really fun stories, but we just like to wrap up with one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So do you have any suggestions for our listeners today, Matt? Well, I think this is a suggestion. Certainly, I'll speak from our experience, at least. The bulk of our dollars that we give go to what I would call big strategic kinds of things. An organization that I really trust who's doing something that is worthwhile and that I want to be part of. The bulk of our transactions and the bulk of our joy are from much smaller, more individual types of giving. It's a, you know, restaurant bill that's 30 bucks and leaving a 100% tip, or it's a family that's in need, or it's a, whatever. I mean, lots of, lots of little transactions, trying to keep my radar up for that and give to those kinds of things. I even use that selfishly sometimes. Like if I'm having a bad day, I'm like, I should give some money away, you know, to cheer myself up a little bit. So, yeah, I'd say just be open to both those things. I think the the bigger strategic stuff we're doing is obviously important as stewards, but also is the the joy. And we were actually doing enough of that kind of giving that we created a a nonprofit that has a very broad mission statement intentionally that allows us to do some of that kind of stuff tax-free. Now, if you can not write it off, I'd still recommend doing it. We were doing lots of that before we had the nonprofit. But if that's part of your heart, like it is mine, I would even say it's possible to to start a nonprofit that is really broad in its nature 
And therefore, if I want to leave a huge tip or help a family overcome a need, that fits within the mission of that organization. And so anyway, that's, I guess, the, the first part's for everybody. Balanced strategic giving with joy-filled little things. And the, the second part's maybe for one or two or three who do enough of that to make it worthwhile. Yeah, I love that. I think having a plan for your giving is really important. And it, it helps you actually act upon the things that God puts on your heart. So I, I love those ideas. And I just really appreciate you spending some time with us today and sharing some of your story. And I hope that everyone who hears this gets to be encouraged by the joy that's so evident as you share about just the opportunities to, to live a generous lifestyle. So thank you so much for spending some time today. Thanks, Cody and Keelan. It was uh, a joy to be with you guys, genuinely. It cheered me up thinking about all these stories. And uh, yeah, I hope it encourages others as well. But thanks for encouraging me either way. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 83. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.